Are you drinking whiskey? No, tea. <laughs> I was like, that's a big, that's a big cup of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to episode 48 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today, we are covering what would be the biggest tech acquisition of all time, Broadcom acquiring Qualcomm. And as we record, the current status of the deal was it was rejected today um, for a, a price of $103 billion, not including the, the um, or I guess accounting for the debt that is part of the deal. And uh, it'll be really fascinating to see how this how this unfolds in front of us, David. Yeah, the battle of the comms. Yeah, one M versus two. Who will win? <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me of three com. <laughs> yes, it's incredibly incredibly creative names in this industry. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think uh, one of the themes we'll get into today is what's old is new again. So. You know, it's like we're back in the year 2001 here. Okay, so for for listeners who are uh, maybe not as uh, as deep in um, as in semiconductor companies and um, wondering sort of what these companies do, they're both effectively fabless semiconductor companies. So they neither of them have fabs, which are the uh, fabrication facilities that actually manufacture the chips these days, um, with the exception of maybe Intel, Samsung, TSMC, um, most of the chip designers are not actually the the chip manufacturers because it's so expensive to create them. So both of these companies um, design and then work with contract manufacturing partners to manufacture the chips that go inside your phone and other computing devices. And um, they, they make everything from the actual processors themselves to wireless radios. And, and we'll get into that more in the show. But it's basically component makers for, for phones, computers, servers, etc. Yeah. And your car, your toaster, your everything these days. <laughs> That's right. IoT explosion. Well, before we get too much into it, um, a, a couple of, uh, of quick reminders. We've got a Slack where we are over a thousand strong. So if you, uh, if you like to talk about uh, M&A, IPOs, tech news, uh, or just add another Slack because um, Lord knows we cannot be in, in too many of those, go to acquire.fm. You can join in the sidebar or on mobile down at the bottom. The other thing is we love reviews. So if uh, if you like the show and you think other people would like it too, pause the show right now. You can always come back to it um, and, and go leave a quick review on uh, on Apple Podcasts. And you can do that through, I think, through the iTunes store. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were... Already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now 
has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at StatSig than at Visa? On the customer side, StatSig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. All right. And with that, David, are you ready to uh, to take us in? Yeah. But before we get into history and facts today, I think there's some stage setting that'll probably come back in tech themes. But uh, but I want to do up front, um, we were joking a minute ago about what's old being new again in, in Silicon Valley right now. And, and the old that is new is the silicon in Silicon Valley. <laughs> uh, there's there's obviously this deal, which is uh, potentially going through largest technology acquisition of all time, Broadcom buying Qualcomm. But that's far from the only thing happening in the semiconductor world right now. Well, uh, well and, hel- and hilariously, Silicon Valley, I mean, the the um, genesis and innovation of semiconductors is in, in Silicon Valley, um, you know, the area south of San Francisco around San Jose. But Singapore-based Broadcom and San Diego-based Qualcomm are neither nope, in, in Silicon nope, Valley. Nope, indeed. There's just a lot going on in true Silicon Valley and in, in the rest of the world, uh, Silicon Valley in spirit. Um, so... I, I thought maybe we'd review just a couple things. And, and this might be, uh, depending on how you guys like this, maybe this will become another theme that we dig into here at Acquired, which is what's going on in the semiconductor world to go with our sort of mini series that we have on travel and um, and sports and other, other things. But uh, it all started uh, really a couple of years ago, as with many things, with the sort of boom in machine learning. If we could look at a company called NVIDIA, which is another uh, another chip maker, and for a long time they made just graphics cards for PCs and video game consoles and workstations, and um, so if you were a gamer, you definitely knew what NVIDIA was, and maybe you owned some of their stock. Um, but then with GPUs over the last couple of years becoming so prevalent in machine learning, NVIDIA has basically been on this crazy tear. So if you go back to 2015, they were trading at $20 a share. <laughs> <laughs> you and I did the same math to prepare for this episode. <laughs> I, have, so I have January funny. of 2016 at $26 a share. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is, you know, we don't compare notes before we start here. <laughs> we're keeping the conversation real. So two years ago, NVIDIA is at $20 a share. Today, it's at $212 a share. So that's over a 10x in two years. I mean, this is like 
VCs would kill to have that kind of markup. Uh, and this is in the public markets. It turns out, you know, graphics cards are good for more than just graphics. Who knew? Linear algebra, matrix transforms, you know, really good for for uh, games and for rendering. And it just so happens for the core technology that's a piece of every new technology now, machine learning. Yep, yep. So you've got NVIDIA, which is on fire uh, in a good way. You've got a company called Nirvana, which was a another GPU and, and machine learning kind of dedicated chip manufacturer, chip designer, that was a startup that was acquired by Intel uh, for $350 million. And that was kind of, in many ways, I think the um, uh, the start of a renaissance in, in terms of actual startups getting started in the, in the semiconductor world, which hadn't happened in a long time. Um, so just this week, uh, Sequoia led a $50 million round in a company called GraphCore out of the UK, which also makes... Uh, specialized chips for for machine learning and, and deep learning applications. And what's crazy, this company has been around for only about a year. Uh, Sequoia just invested $50 million. They had already raised $60 million. So this company has raised $110 million in just over a year to compete in what's a very crowded market now of lots of startups um, going out there trying to compete with NVIDIA, make specialized machine learning chips. It's worth pausing for a moment here. Like, What's enabled that, that innovation? I mean, aside from the market demand for new types of computing um, with, with machine learning, the need for just a few companies to consolidate and have most of the fabs in the silicon industry uh, made sense. You know, it, it's been around for a while, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years. And that happened because as we shrunk the, the number of nanometers that were necessary or that we could, um, we could put on a wafer, not being very eloquent there, but basically as we got more and more sophisticated at... Uh, putting more and more transistors on a given wafer, it became more and more expensive to produce the, the uh, ability to manufacture those. So only a few companies are actually doing the manufacturing because it costs $10 billion plus dollars to, to create one of these fabs. So suddenly you have this platform where you don't need the actual capital to, to do the manufacturing yourself. So you can start a smaller company to just do designs, to either license your designs, to work with these manufacturers. Um, it, it actually reminds me, it's funny we're doing tech themes before we even talk history, but it reminds me a lot of, of Jeff Bezos talking about how Amazon wouldn't be possible if it weren't for the electric grid and for UPS and for the internet and for you know everyone, the, the phone companies before the internet, everyone that came before to basically build platforms that you could do innovation on top of. Yep. Yes, I would say yes, but what's interesting about this class of startups is they kind of fall somewhere between the amount of capital that you used to need to create a semiconductor company when you were you were fabbing the chips and like a software company in that you know as we're seeing with with this company graphcore like they're raising a ton of money and i think that's because you need so many engineers and so much just technology investment going into working on these chip designs i mean these things are so massively complex uh that it just takes a ton of investment into them um, and, and then that's also not to mention sales investment, right? Because there's so many companies out there now competing for this, this segment. You've got the machine learning, you know, sort of craze going on and, and all of the growth that's being chased by lots of startups and big companies there in one corner of the market. Then, Ben, as you mentioned, in another corner of the market, you have the fabs themselves. So that's TSMC, uh, which I believe is the biggest. Um, and then Samsung and Intel 
are the major fabs out there in the world. And, and TSMC is over a $200 billion market cap company. And, and as you said, like this is just pure commodity production of designs that other people are, are making and including many of these machine learning driven companies. So that's in another corner of the market. And those companies are growing uh, as all this demand is coming online for chips that they're producing. And then you've got this third corner of the market, and that's what we're going to explore today. And these are uh, kind of in, in many ways, legacy large chip designers that really had had a big run up over the last 10 years as the mobile era uh, got installed. You know, both of these companies, Broadcom and Qualcomm specifically, were making tons of chips that were going into just about every mobile phone out there. But what's happened is that you have Apple, which has started to bring a lot of their chip design in-house, as we talked about on the PA Semi and Authentic episode, um, to the point where I believe almost pretty much almost every chip within an iPhone and an iPad is is Apple designed in-house at this point. Ah, no, it is not. No. Um, oh, so this, interesting. This is, this is a good, I'll take a little segue here because I, uh, um, as I was trying to understand myself exactly what is Qualcomm and what is Broadcom, um, I went and, and looked at the uh, basically bill of materials and the teardowns for each of the iPhone X and the Pixel 2 XL. And uh. it is actually pretty surprising how many components are made by these companies that are in not only Android phones, but but iPhones. And so really? while, while we all know that Apple creates their own design for the the A11 processor or the whole A-series processors, the motion coprocessor, the, I think they have their own audio, the um, digital signal processor now. So Apple's designing all these things and they're having them contract manufactured by TSMC and Samsung. There's actually plenty of Qualcomm and Broadcom components in uh, in the iPhone. So inside the iPhone 10, Qualcomm makes the Gigabit LTE transceiver. They also make the LTE modem, which is actually part of the Snapdragon series. Um, and Apple dual sources this between Intel and Qualcomm. So they they sort of switch off which um, uh, some batches of phones get an Intel, some some get the the Qualcomm. Uh, the iPhone 10 has uh, Broadcom chips for wireless charging. Uh, for the power amplifier module and for the touchscreen controller. So all those things are our Broadcom. And in the Pixel 2 XL, um, which is actually uh, manufactured by LG, and the, the HTC one is just the, the Pixel 2, um, Qualcomm makes a variety of components. They make the Snapdragon processor, which is the um, sort of counterpart to Apple's A11 Bionic chip. Um, they, uh, Qualcomm makes the Gigabit LTE RF transceiver, the power management integrated circuit, the quick charge integrated circuit. And interestingly enough, I don't think there's any Broadcom components in the Pixel 2 XL, at least not that could be identified by people that are ripping the phone apart. So the bottom line here is the iPhone 10 and the, the the Pixel 2 XL both have a ton of Qualcomm and Broadcom parts in them. And I think the only major area where they don't compete is actually on the the sort of main CPU itself. They compete on on all the radios and all the, the Bluetooth and the Wi-Fi and all that stuff. Interesting. Interesting. Well, goes to show how complicated this space is uh, <laughs> yeah everybody is a frenemy everybody is a competitor everybody is in, in co-opetition yeah and even just the sheer number of chips in these devices is crazy 
Okay, so with that backdrop, uh, let's get into Qualcomm and Broadcom a little bit. Both companies are are at this point sort of Franken companies, as we were joking before the show, of <laughs> yep. having done so much M and A over the years that it's hard to hard to even untangle the rat's nest and go back and figure out where they originated. But real quick on on Broadcom, I, th- I thought this was interesting. They actually merged themselves with another company called Avago last year. Um, and actually, the the company today known as Broadcom really is Avago. They took the Broadcom name. And Avago uh, started life itself way back in the day as HP's semiconductor division. Um, has then been through a bunch of divestitures and, and mergers over the years and ended up uh, ended up here. Um, but it goes really back to the, the origin of Silicon Valley with Hewlett Packard in the garage. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about what would have happened if they hadn't spun that out. That could be sort of a fun episode to do at some point. But yeah. you know, what if what if HP was the largest smartphone component manufacturer? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, they might be in a better place than they are now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But that's for another episode. Um, but Qualcomm will spend a little more time on this because uh, I think this is such a fun story. So Qualcomm uh, was founded back in 1985 by University of San Diego or UC University of California, San Diego professor uh, Erwin Jacobs, along with several other folks that he had worked with in the uh, colleagues from from academia and in the in the chip industry. And it actually was uh, and this is what I think is fun about it. It was actually like an OG network effect company and the network effect that Qualcomm was started around, even though it became a semiconductor company was the original network effect of the telephone. And, and what I mean by that is if you go back and, and think about kind of the Bell Telephone Company and the idea of, you know, as you add more participants to the network of people who have telephones and are connected, then the more valuable the network becomes as you as you add more people and the more defensible it becomes. Well, Qualcomm actually sort of stumbled into doing the same thing with cellular telephones. Um, so we all remember you know, or many of us uh, remember there, there were sort of the, the carrier standard wars that were happening over the, uh, the decade of the 2000s and most of the 2010s of, you know, GSM versus CDMA. Oh, yeah, we, we went with singular specifically because my dad like was looking into this and, and decided that he wanted to make a bet on GSM, that GSM was the future. And I think something about the GSM architecture made it so you could have there were fewer towers right now, but they had a wider range. So it was the safe bet for the future that when they put more of them out, they're going to be more efficient. Um, and we're still with AT&T to this day, post-singular AT&T merger for that reason. <laughs> yep. And so Singular and AT&T were with the GSM standard, as was T-Mobile in the US. And and Verizon and Sprint were, were CDMA, and they were incompatible with another one another. This was like the HD, T, HD DVD and Blu-ray of, you know, the mobile telephone world. And consumers trying to understand that is a complete nightmare. Oh, complete nightmare. Well, and, and to make it even more of a nightmare, though, the actual underlying technology behind these standards was all CDMA. And Qualcomm uh, commercialized, they didn't invent the technology of CDMA, but they were the first to commercialize the application of this to, to the cell phone world of code division multiple access. And what that technology did, it was a standard that allowed for communication and multiple access, the MA stands for, it allowed for the communication of many, many different 
private channels over one wavelength or one frequency um, in uh, in the airwaves. And so that's how when you know you have however many millions of people all on a cellular network and they all have their own you know data that they're streaming and calls that they're on and text messages that they're doing, but it's all going over the same airwaves. That's how it's all divided and everybody has their own private channel. And the technology to do that was invented by Qualcomm and so they started putting it into cell phone base stations, and then they started making handsets and, and chipsets for handset cell phone handsets that went with it. And then the more base stations that got out there uh, that operated on this technology, then the more handsets that were put on that could take advantage of those base stations. And then it just turned into this virtuous cycle and became a network effect. And so even though there were these two different flavors of it with GSM and and official CDMA. It was all based on the underlying Qualcomm technology, and Qualcomm was making money from licensing from all of it. Even if we flash forward now, looking at their their licensing revenues, I think a lot of these come come from patents, and and, and I'm sure we'll get into that. But it's something like uh, maybe a third of of Qualcomm's revenue is is from licensing deals. I think uh, I can get the actual number here. Yeah, Qualcomm's 10K last quarter or last year was 15.4 billion in revenue from equipment and services, and 8 billion from licensing. And and a lot of that I think goes back to this um, this underlying technology that they're licensing out that's in just about every cell phone radio out there, base station. How do we get from there? This is in the late 90s, mid mid 90s through late 90s, all the way through the 2000s that they're focusing on this. How do we get from there to where we are today with Broadcom? Well, you know, first they were making the base stations and at Qualcomm was, and then they started making phones. So I remember actually having Qualcomm cell phones, Qualcomm branded cell Whoa. phones back in the day when I was in middle school, uh, dating myself there. And then they, they, they end up selling that business and they, they go into making chipsets that go into the phones. They sold the, the handset business to Kyocera. I remember also having Kyocera-based <laughs> phones. <laughs> and um, so they go into making chipsets. And this is, you know, when they get into like the Snapdragon processors that get branded that people hear about. Um, and, but then over the past few years, as the phone market has gotten really saturated and and a lot of the processors, especially the non-processors uh, that aren't designed, the chips that aren't designed by the Apples and the Samsungs themselves, start to become more commoditized. That's when we start to see consolidation happening in this space. This is when the Broadcom and Avago deal happened last year. And now Broadcom is coming in and attempting to buy Qualcomm to further consolidate. Yeah. And one quick note, I want to rewind earlier where I said uh, uh, Broadcom doesn't make actual CPUs. They do make CPUs. The thing I was thinking of is I don't believe that Broadcom makes LTE uh, antennas. They just make the chips that are um, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and all that. First of all, I didn't know that Qualcomm ever made a phone. We're going to have to... I don't know, dig up one of those or something. <laughs> okay, so here we are. There's all this consolidation going on right now. One of my tech themes was was actually that we're, we're in this era now where this stuff has gotten so commoditized and, and gotten pushed down so far in price that we need to see consolidation because the R&D costs to be a, a, a chip manufacturer are enormous. The manufacturing costs are enormous. The um, cycle to, to create the next new model is, is long and expensive. So, I mean, these companies, in order to really compete, 
with with the vertical integrators themselves, with the handset manufacturers, have to combine because they it, they want to take advantage of combining their R and D costs, their manufacturing costs, all that, and basically bundle those together and then bundle their products when they're selling them to the handset manufacturers so they can say, look, we'll give you, instead of buying from two different companies, you're buying from one. So we'll we'll cut you a deal. We'll sell you all the internals to this phone. Um, and they're really just feeling a lot of pressure by the, the handset manufacturers starting to um, take on some of this on their own where they need to preserve their margins by, by combining. Yeah. I mean, this is really... Um you know, I think this is one of the first times on this show, maybe other than the Alaska Virgin episode where we've seen, you know, economies of scale, like actually be a thing <laughs> uh, because in <laughs> software, it usually doesn't work that way. Right, right. It so happens that this is so expensive to produce and so expensive to uh, to develop that it actually makes sense. Yep. Obviously, we've glossed over a lot there in the history and facts, but in the in an effort to keep this episode under three hours. <laughs> I, I'm going to. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple things on history and facts that I want to pull out before we go into uh, into um, uh, acquisition category. So one of them is that this this deal. So we, we said it was rejected. One hundred and three billion dollar deal, not including the assumed debt. I think it's one hundred and thirty billion dollar purchase price, including the debt. It's a $70 per share in cash and stock. Um, I'll make a prediction that this deal will go through at some point somewhere slightly higher than this. So let's say it's you know at $80 per, per share in cash and stock. Let's evaluate the rest of this episode on that basis, that, that it actually does go through, that it gets the regulatory approval, which is another thing we should talk about, and that, uh, that it's around that price. It's interesting to know all the other things going on with these companies right now that are shaping the environment of why their share prices are where they are, why there there are external pressures. Um, there's lawsuits going on. Uh, the FTC is currently suing Qualcomm. Apple is currently embroiled in a lawsuit with Qualcomm. Their share price is depressed right now because of these external factors going on. So if I'm Broadcom, what I'm seeing here is, boy, there's an opportunity to, to get a great company for pretty cheap because they're going through this sort of rocky time. They'll pull out of it. Their stock price will rebound. But hey, I mean, they were trading at 70 bucks a share a year ago. Uh, now they're trading below that. We can pretend it's a little bit of a premium now and try and buy them at that again when their intrinsic value is actually probably higher. So, so we're definitely seeing uh, Broadcom being opportunistic uh, from a time frame perspective right now. And then the other thing on top of that is that um, Silver Lake Partners, a private equity firm, and actually the private equity firm that owns Skype uh, and, and sold that to Microsoft, yep. which we, we covered on the Skype episode of the Along show. Along with Andreessen Horowitz right. in a, as a small piece. That's right. Um, they committed $5 billion in convertible debt to finance this acquisition for Broadcom. And the Broadcom uh, offer is cash and stock, where it's uh, $10 of... Uh, stock and $60 of cash per share for this. So it's interesting to sort of look at the the structure of the deal a little bit and sort of the the environmental factors around it. And I think it's probably the right move for for Qualcomm to uh, to reject it for this price because they're seeing the same thing that that Broadcom is is just being opportunistic and not um, not really being willing at least at the first go around here to to pay for um, what the company's really worth. That brings up another point that uh, is a key difference in the semiconductor corner of the tech world versus much of the software world, which is that these companies all have significant debt on them. Um, so they're levered. And uh, and you're seeing a lot of structure, you know, as, as you pointed out. I mean, Silver Lake's involved here. 
um, using convertible debt to help finance the acquisition. This is not a uh, not typically how things get done in the software no. world, where you know Facebook buys you for stock. Yep. And just to add even more hair to the deal on both side, um, Broadcom is currently acquiring Brocade. I think that's how you say it for five billion dollars. I have another comment on that in a minute. Qualcomm is in the midst of acquiring NXP semiconductors for forty-seven billion dollars. The offer from Broadcom to buy Qualcomm was not contingent upon either of these things closing, which is is interesting in its own right. If it does close, I'm sorry, if Broadcom does buy Qualcomm, what does that mean? Like, does that does the MX, NXP deal go away? Do they try and and continue doing that even as a combined entity? Will that go through regulatory approval? Who knows? And then on top of all this, here's the the super interesting thing. So Broadcom proposed merging with Brocade, and they're going through this acquisition. It was delayed for review because of the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And to circumvent this, Broadcom, or I actually don't believe it's explicitly been said that that's what this is for, but Broadcom ex- announced that it will relocate its legal address from Singapore to Delaware. So it would be a US-based company, which would avoid that review. And uh, and you, you can imagine how this was sort of um, highly, highly intertwined with all of uh, the United States' recent politics and, uh, and buddying up to the Trump administration from the Broadcom side. Let's just add the most complex structure possible on top of this deal to, um, to add a bunch of external complicating factors. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing we can say about this whole industry as a uh, Ben and I started to dive into it today is that it is massively complex and there is so much drama going on for, you know, what to most of tech is just thought of as like a relatively sleepy, stable corner of the industry. <laughs> right. uh, there is massive change happening. Absolutely right. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts, so frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com slash acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. Let's go into acquisition category. So David, where are you on that? 
Yeah. So I'm going to go with, and as a reminder to the audience, we have people, technology, product, business line, asset, and other. I'm going to go with uh, other here and just say this is consolidation. I mean, literally these companies make the same commodity chipsets <laughs> and uh, like they're not buying new product lines. They're not buying differentiated technologies. Uh, you know, there's no, as, as you pointed out, they're not, uh, they're not fabs themselves. So they're not buying, you know, fab capacity. Um, they're, they're literally just buying consolidation within uh, this, the existing sales channels that they're going through. Yeah, it's 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 buying themselves more supplier power against their their combined customers and and trying to reduce uh, uh, reduce cost to preserve margin. And as you said that, I'm nodding my head like, yes, you're exactly right. And I'm realizing somehow I don't think we've done a pure consolidation play on the show before. 48 episodes in and here we are coming up with a new acquisition category for ourselves that is like one of the textbook reasons why companies are merged or acquired. <laughs> it's funny. I I remember doing it on something. Did did we do it on uh, Virgin in Alaska? I think Zillow. Um, we struggled to articulate uh, exactly what was going on, but we were yeah. like, oh, you know, it's a marketplace where there's more of identical supply and more of identical demand. Yeah. I think we did call it consolidation there. To my mind, like it's pretty clear this is what's happening here. Especially when you bring in, as we were talking about a minute ago, the whole economy is a scale factor here. Yep. Listeners, this is probably a good time to say, neither David nor I have spent a ton of time doing the financial analysis on this this company um, because a few hours ago we decided to call an audible and uh, we were going to do what we thought was going to be an exciting episode with uh, um, Starwood and uh, and Marriott. But as we were both digging into it, we were texting each other and being like, uh, there's really actually nothing new or insightful here. David said to me, the episode is probably mostly going to be about Airbnb, which we've covered many times before. So uh, uh, listeners know that we would rather uh, dive into a, a meaty subject like this and uh, and maybe not have done all of our financial analysis like we would normally do at the, the alternative of doing a what we thought would be a boring episode. So with that whole caveat, <laughs> um, it is interesting to look out one thing that I haven't I haven't fully wrapped my head around yet is why Broadcom is so much more va- uh, uh, valuable than Qualcomm. Because if you look at their profit margins are pretty similar. Qualcomm has 56% profit margins. Broadcom has 59% profit mar- margins. If you look at their revenues last year, Broadcom did about, um, in, in 2016, $13.2 billion of total revenue. And Qualcomm did $23 billion of revenue. So... I'm trying to suss out here exactly why Broadcom is the the much more valuable company. It's got to be just something else that I haven't really considered yet: growth rate, or balance sheet, or or um, or or, or something like that. Um, But you know, you have two companies where it's just not totally clear to me that one of them is the super behemoth that is is buying up the smaller one. It really does kind of feel like a combination of very very similar competitors. Yeah, totally. I'm wondering if maybe it was, yeah, maybe balance sheet and maybe debt loads on these companies are different. But yeah, it does feel very much like a like a merger of equals here. Yeah, so here it is on on uh, on Yahoo Finance. It, probably because of the combination um, of Avago and uh, and Broadcom, their uh, revenues in 2015 were at uh, 6.8 billion and then spiked to 13.2 in 2016. So you know, revenues 
grew tremendously. If you look over at Qualcomm, not only is it is it not a hyper growth company, it, the last three years from 2015 to 2016 to 2017 went from 25.2 billion to 23.5 billion to 22.2 billion. Revenues are actually declining for Qualcomm. Actually declining, yeah. Well, that's a recipe for <laughs> <laughs> not uh, yeah. not getting a high multiple on your stack. Yep. To me, we don't have a, a, a super behemoth acquiring a, a much smaller player. We sort of have two competitors that are in a quite similar position. Yep. But uh, I mean, that also speaks to, I think, you know, the, the markets that these companies are in right now, the smartphone market is just so saturated. Like it's it's not growing and, and prices are, are falling. Like volumes may be growing, but because these parts are commoditizing so fast, like prices are prices are just falling faster than than the volumes are picking up. Yep. Yep. And uh, there's a great article by Stacy Higginbotham on Stacy on IoT, her uh, um her blog or her publication talking about how when phone makers are vertically integrating, it means there's less room for the sort of horizontal co- providers of the components because even though the markets are growing, there's now been a precedent set by Apple where when you become hugely successful, you can graduate away from the chip makers into doing it in-house. I frequently think about this at, at Pioneer Square Labs when we're starting businesses that look a lot like tools businesses, like, oh, well, if your customers, if you enable your customers to be too successful, will they start doing this in-house? And it's it's something that I think, David, you probably think about a lot in, in evaluating investment opportunities too, but I don't think that in, until very recently um, that characteristic existed in the silicon world. I think it was always, you know, this is an extremely difficult thing that's always done by horizontal providers. So you go to them for the expertise, and and only recently has that started sort of evaporating and and uh, um, people moving off the platform to do it in house. Well, it's it's interesting as I was thinking about this this uh, this deal too. That dynamic really only exists in the pure technology world, right? And what I mean by that is like the phone, the smartphone world, like, and um, other devices that are clearly positioned, you know, built and sold by technology companies as technology devices. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why both of these companies are making, Broadcom and Qualcomm are making such pushes in the quote unquote IoT world of, you know, putting chipsets into all sorts of other you know, non-traditional technology devices, because those companies, you know, whether it's, uh, I think this was also part of that same piece, uh, this idea that like, you know, Whirlpool isn't going to start vertically integrating right, <laughs> like the right. chipsets in there, you know, jacuzzis or whatever, like, or, you know, your toaster, whoever makes your toaster isn't going to start designing their own chips. You um, watch. So they can probably, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you watch. Well, that's, that's actually Apple's next growth market. <laughs> I was gonna say, it's going to come from a very different <laughs> place where you believe. And actually, by the time this episode yeah. airs, um, we will have seen the highly, highly anticipated Elon Musk semi truck. So, you know, I think uh, uh, don't, yeah. don't get too excited about boring, old, undisrupted things not having their own uh, their own chips. Well, software is eating the world. So I think we've covered a lot of tech names here, but you know, one that I've been sort of puzzling over, and I was when we decided a couple hours ago we were going to cover this topic, I was really hoping to get an answer to, and I haven't. Is um, so Sequoia on their old website, I think we've talked about this in the past, uh, maybe about this very, very theme. They used to have like this whole list of sort of like lessons that they've learned over the years. And one of them, uh, pretty high on the list, was this statement that capital intensity usually produces nightmares. And I'd always in, in my mind 
been trying to square that statement with the fact that so much of Sequoia's early success came from investing in semiconductor companies, which of course, as we're talking about, are like super capital intensive. And now Sequoia is back this week and they've invested in other semiconductors too, but back in the market, you know, and, and leading a $50 million round in a year old company that's already raised $60 million. I mean, if that's not capital intensity, I don't know what is. And, and so how do you square that? Because like I, on the one hand, I, I totally get the statement and I agree with it. Like you've got a very competitive market, but then all these companies raising all this money, it's not going to end well for most people. I mean, you're seeing this in ride sharing, right? Like ride sharing became a capital intensive business. And uh, so you have all of these companies all around the world raising all this money. Not all of them are going to win. In the semiconductor world at the same time, though, you do have this capital intensity that, that can produce good returns and certainly has for Broadcom and Avago and many other companies, TSMC and the other side of the market. I don't know. What do you think, Ben? I think there's a few things here. I think one, capital deployment into companies is not a perfectly efficient market and it relies on um, people's access to deals and timing and emotions and getting swayed by trends. And I think we'd all like to imagine that we come up with an investment thesis and we just stick to it with incredible discipline. I think in practice, there are deals that come your way and you do them because they make sense in the time, even though they don't fit into the master thesis. And the plan is the plan until the plan changes. And I think, you know, it, it probably falls into that category. It also probably falls into the category of every single person at a firm not ha having the exact same thesis over a 20-year lens. And I think on top of that, there's going to be enormous winners in this space. And it, what, what better thing to do with venture money than put it in an incredibly high-risk, high-reward um, opportunity? I mean, th these are $100 billion companies. And I think that, that if you can get something that even as a public stock like NVIDIA grows and, and 10x is like that, you know, there, there's, there's um, while they are, are fraught with danger and, and uh, often don't end well and, you know, don't end well in almost every case, the winners are huge. So they're not zero marginal cost huge and they're not, they're not like Facebook, you know, you can increase your margins by 15% in one quarter. They don't have those characteristics, but they do have the characteristics of um, build something incredibly, incredibly valuable that are riding a wave and charge lots of money for it to lots of customers. That's true. And maybe that's just, you have to get good at really, really good at picking the winners because the danger here, right, is at least, you know, when we're talking about early stage companies, if you need to put $110 million into a company that still has tons of, tons of technology risk uh, a year into its life, you just can't take that many, you can't put that many of those companies in a portfolio, right? Like, and, and that kind of breaks the venture model. Well, I mean, it goes right in line with people raising bigger and bigger funds these days, too. Yep. Well, and the one thing that we we didn't talk about in, in the beginning of the episode about all the activity in the semiconductor space is, uh, surprise, surprise, SoftBank is here, too. So SoftBank acquired Arm <laughs> uh, a couple years ago. Uh, this was before the Vision Fund, but <laughs> if it had been after the Vision Fund existed, they probably would have put it in there, too. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, yeah, so SoftBank acquired Arm for um, $32 billion. Um, and uh, so I guess a, it, it's a pittance. Yeah, it's a, a pittance. small potatoes. Yeah, right. <laughs> Only a third of the fund. Um, <laughs> and, but, and, and I'm pretty sure they like 
buying ARM doesn't mean you buy any manufacturing capability. You're buying, I think, the rights to most of those designs and supply chain relationships. I know they have a few different packages that they sell, but... I believe it's actually probably very similar dynamics to Qualcomm, where ARM you know, was not a, not a, a fab, um, but they made the reference designs for, um, for CPU chipsets. Uh, and that actually is also a network effect game, just like CDMA and Qualcomm, where as more chipsets are built using that instruction set, the ARM instruction set, and more operating systems and apps run on them, then that's going to lead to more you know, phones and devices with that chipset getting built. That's going to lead to more software getting written for those chipsets. And then that's going to you know, create the network effect. And I guess, you know, as I was... Uh, thinking about this, the sort of one tech theme that I felt like I was able to pretty much land on uh, in this in this show is is this idea that standards can can lead to network effects. I mean, uh, we saw it with ARM, we saw it with Intel and the x86 chipset, uh, we saw it with Qualcomm and CDMA. I never really thought about that. That even in a very capital intensive, you know, hardware space, um, you also can have network effect dynamics. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And I'm out of my league here, but you might be able to evaluate this better than me. But one other tech theme I was thinking about is, are we seeing deals like this that are so highly leveraged and companies carrying so much debt and companies able to use debt to buy other companies because interest rates are so low? And and do interest rates being low from a macroeconomic sense spur more consolidation between gigantic companies like this because they can use debt for their acquisitions. That could be true, but it's nowhere near like what we saw uh, before the financial crisis in 2008. I mean, some of those companies were levered like, you know, hugely. I remember looking at, um, you know, 5X leverage uh, on these companies. And I don't think Qualcomm and Broadcom are are that highly levered. Uh, It's Probably more like, well, we can go back and do the math, but um, probably more like, you know, somewhere between one to three X levered. So I don't think we're quite at those heights yet, but certainly more so than in the software space. Cool. Thanks. Okay. So one step, one thing we skipped is what would have happened otherwise. There's going to be consolidation. Like there's already deals lined up and they're trying to do other deals before those deals close. Like if these companies don't merge with each other, um, then then we're just going to see they'll they'll probably end up the same company later through some crazy path of consolidation the same way that um, the baby bells break up and, and reform. That's certainly what it seems like. Yep. Which is probably good tee up for grading. grading this. Yeah. So um, when we're thinking about grading this, Dave and I were talking about this before, um, we'll put a, a little bit of a premium on that first offer and figure the deal goes through somewhere between, you know, call, call it $80 a share instead of $70 a share. Ultimately, the shareholders get to decide here so they can go against the the board uh, who, who, who rejected the offer and decide to accept this one. I suspect Broadcom will probably come back with one that's slightly higher and we'll evaluate this as the deal goes through and assume, which is a big leap, that it will uh, it'll pass through regulatory uh, approval because um, I was reading there was another great stat that I saw that is uh, uh, from Bloomberg that if they combine, then 65% of the bill of materials um, of handset semiconductors will come from one single manufacturer. So that's uh, um, we'll see if this actually clears regulatory approval. But if it does, that's the lens that we're viewing this through. Was that a good acquisition for Broadcom? Yeah, I 
think it's probably going to be a decent deal for Broadcom, right? Like as all this consolidation is happening, like it's going to be an eventuality that either you are the consolidator or the consolidatee and for Broadcom to come out with an aggressive bid like this for Qualcomm, which even though their revenue is declining, is still a massive player in the space. Um, and to try and pick them up for, as you pointed out, you know, relatively a good deal, even if they can squeak it through at a, at a premium, uh, 10, 15% premium from the offer that they just made, um, probably feels like a pretty good deal as long as they're able to continue to realize the, uh, the economies of scale. Yeah, I agree. So what does that translate to you, um, for, you know, like a letter grade? Yeah. Yeah. How we do on the show. Uh, <laughs> oh, is that what <laughs> I, we I do I saw you try to sneak out of that one. <laughs> uh, trying to sweet talk my way out of that. Uh, <laughs> gosh, I'm going to go, I don't know what to do other than a B, right? Like it's not yeah, transformative. I, I, I know. Um, I know. I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking of B2. We need some other category for like, this needs to happen. It's the right thing to do. But like, it's, it's not great for anybody. It's yeah. not like, you know. I mean. It's kind of boring, even though the whole <laughs> thing's actually, it's like an exciting space. Yeah. Like I'm actually really glad that we spent some time learning about the space. But um, man, it's hard to get jazzed up the way we can about, you know, Instagram or um even the handset business with with um, Google and Motorola. Yeah, the question is, you know, the, uh, so I'm I'm with you on a B. I'll agree on that. In the far future, do we think the company exists, or do we think that Apple and and Google and Facebook just keep working to vertically integrate and and start cutting out one piece of their offering at once, all the way until they're they're the most commoditized and then gone? Yeah. Well. I think that very well could happen in the phone business, um, but probably not in the you know IoT business, the embedded business. Um, and then also there is the licensing and the patent element here too, which we didn't talk about, but um, Qualcomm in particular, but Broadcom as well, they just make a ton of money from enforcing their patents and collecting royalties because again, they invented a lot of the core technology in the space. Yep. Man, I will be so curious what the story is to regulators of why this is not anti-competitive to push it through, and both both in the U.S. and and in the EU, uh, because they have different sort of definitions of of uh, what what the regulatory bodies are looking for. So um, maybe we'll have to do a follow up episode. Uh, should should this be attempted, and should it either go through or not? Well. Maybe next time. <laughs> yep. All right. All right. Carve outs. Let's do it. Okay. So mine, um, we have been, uh, uh, we've been outfitting our new office in San Francisco down here. I thought this was going to be a, a San Francisco only carve out. But when I, when I went on the website, I realized it's also in Seattle and LA. So much of our audience is in luck. Big Daddy's Antiques is my carve out for the week. We've gotten a ton of pieces of furniture for our office it's an awesome place. They have like really crazy fun stuff. That's actually surprisingly like functional in an office setting. So that's uh, that's my exciting carve out for the week. Sweet. Well, <laughs> congratulations on your, your new antiques from big daddies, from big daddies. Um, my, uh, my carve out is a super, super random corner of the internet it is a front page website that has not been updated in at least a decade um, that got linked to from hacker news last week 
and it is called Niagara Falls, The Summer of 69, The Dewatering of the American Falls. And it is a really cool historical bit of research put onto a website. And it's it's great. It's niagarafrontier.com slash dewater.html. It's uh, basically the, the, the craziest thing happened. They, they dried up the American Falls um, and diverted all the water flow. Um, because of uh, initially for, for for some concern around erosion, and there's these just incredible pictures of people sort of walking right over the falls, what the falls look like without water, and and the story of of how they did it. And I learned what a coffer dam was, and it's one of these like you know sometimes when you're reading Wikipedia or or a website like this, you just get totally sucked in and fascinated by how they did this when when they had you know. Um, way less manufacturing capability and way less industrial capability that we had now, and they still managed to, um, you know, turn off an enormous faucet of water uh, to do research on on basically what it was doing and uh, um, and just learn about it. So super wow. cool that we had. Wait, so they shut they shut off Niagara the, Falls, the American Falls, not the Canadian Falls. Uh, okay. And, and interestingly okay. enough, I I think I have to like do more research into this, but one of the comments was talking about how um, actually the uh, um, they have a lot more flow diverted to the Canadian Falls during the day because it is exciting to look at from a tourism perspective. And then at night, they divert a lot of that to the hydroelectric power plant, which makes the falls look less spectacular, but that's when we're, what we generate, why we're generating power. And actually, it, we would benefit from having more water flowing through the hydroelectric power plant, but um, it would ruin the spectacle on the, the Canadian side of the falls. Hmm. So. Wow random things that I never thought I would learn that is super <laughs> cool to just dive into and looking at the pictures are, are just kind of wild. That's really cool. And, uh, and it's all from like 10 years ago, the website. Oh yeah, maybe more. I mean, I, I looked at, like I did the, I looked at the source and it, it is actually a front page website. So may, maybe 15, maybe 20. I don't know. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You have to imagine. I, so I don't think there's any analytics on, first of all, it's amazing. The box that it's on is still up and running. Like what is it? Is it co-load in some, <laughs> yeah. You know, where is that box? server farm somewhere? I don't know. And you, you have to imagine there's no like JavaScript based, uh, analytics on it. So the only way that someone would ever know that there was an enormous amount of traffic that went to it from hacker news that day was if they were actually probably monitoring the network activity in that data center going to the box. <laughs> Dude, that would be such a fun, um, like geocaching type, you know, oh, type yeah. thing. Of, like find old websites and then go find where they are physically hosted in the real oh, world. Oh, that would be awesome. That reminds me a lot of like, uh, like mystery show. Have you, do you ever listen to mystery show? The, um, uh, it's another podcast by uh, Gimlet or it was, I think they, they, they no. canceled it, but they solve these crazy mysteries where you're not the, the rule on that show is you're not allowed to use, um, not allowed to use the internet at all to look it up and you have to sort of. The, the host is amazing at figuring out the mysteries, but um, this would be super cool to like try and use digital clues to figure out where it was physically hosted and find it and see if like perhaps it was not a armed guard secured data center so you could actually go find the box. And Well, we got our next, uh, next, next project after acquired, David. <laughs> Coming soon to a podcast client near you. That's right. That's right. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So... Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy... 
they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote-unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers, such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com acquired. That's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com acquired, or click the link in the show notes. We, uh, we hope you enjoy the show. Um, this is yet another opportunity to review Acquired um, and, uh, and tell your friends about it. Share on social media should you, uh, should you feel the need. And uh, thanks so much for being a listener. We'll see you next time. Thank you.